Right, what's the deal with this podcast, Poo? <laughs> so it's uh, me, Don, and Rob, but it's about growing up in the UK in the noughties. Oh, God. Hang on. Let me just... Let me just... Just wait there one sec. I just need to tell Pete to stop playing the guitar for one second. All right. You can't hear it if that helps. Shut up, Pete. <laughs> Shut up with your incessant guitar playing. <laughs> <laughs> this is Guy. In the mid-noughties, from the ages of 13 to 19, we were neighbours in the city of Bath. In 2005, we formed a band, me on guitar, him on drums. And back then, his favourite drummer in the whole world was block parties, Matt Tong. Matt Tong. We built up, I remember Block Party, Silent Alarm was like one of the best albums ever. It's like, you go back, it's like, you're 14 years old. So are we just talking, by the way? Are you just going to record stuff or are you going to ask me questions? No, we're just talking. I may ask you some questions, but we're just talking. Go on, carry on. What are you saying? Silent Alarm, that whole album just takes me back to feeling 14. I specifically remember that album being sort of a catalyst for us forming a band. Uh, totally. And I was listening to it earlier. And I think, honestly, those were some of the happiest times of my life. Do you remember? Because I remember literally running down to HMV the day that it came out, yeah. getting the album. I remember coming back to your house. Yeah. Oh, I, I fucking do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we were like, oh, my God. I was like, mate, we've got to put it. So we, we just put it on and <laughs> listened to it. I think pretty much all the way through. But by the time it got to Banquet, yeah. You started losing your fucking mind. Had a meltdown. Yeah. You like, I cannot believe this is coming out of the speakers. Yeah. And obviously you had a drum kit there. I think we stopped playing it at that point and then you immediately were like, right, get get your guitar. You're coming round. <laughs> I'm like... Yeah, I, I honestly think I can remember yeah, that. It was honestly... And then and then I th I'm pretty sure that was the point we were like, well, we need, we need to start a band now, obviously. Yeah, we have to. We have to be block party. Yeah. We never were though, sadly. No, we never were. Blake Sundance of the Tokyo Patrol uh, did did not get the credits that they so duly deserved. But do you? You're a drummer, so yeah. Do you remember anything specific about Matt Tong's drums? That is there anything about that drumming? That was I I think of someone. I think you know people can look back and go at, like famous drummers from history, but I think I can only relate to people that I grew up around, and I think he he was the epitome of what I wanted to be as a drummer as like a teenage boy he was he was such a such a good drummer like helicopter you you know it it took me what six months just to be able to probably do that song without passing out or screaming screaming half of it do you know what I mean funnily enough Guy wasn't the only one to find it hard here's Block Party's Matt Tong the thing that got me a little bit was that they played so fast and I had a bunch of songs on a demo tape that Kelly had, you know, given to me a, a couple of weeks prior. So I was trying to learn the songs in my head and I was, I kept thinking to myself, I'm not going to be able to play these uh, maybe ever at all. Back then I used to smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and I, you know, I continued smoking up until my lung collapsed on tour in 2006. So I, I was really out of shape and... They were laughing me during that first rehearsal because we would go for a song and then I'd stop. I'd just like sit there panting in the corner, 
have a couple of cigarettes and then carry on again. And that, that you know, we, we, we went on hiatus after 2009. And so I didn't play a gig with Block Party for almost two years. And when it came to like picking those songs up again, I, you know, I, I got my drums set up in the basement and I put my iPod on and started listening to Silent Alarm and I was trying to play along and I couldn't do it. And I, I, I was like, fucking hell, like this seems like it feels like a different person doing this. This, this is not me. Like, I don't know how I could have ever have done this. Do you guys know what day it is today? Today is the 28th of August, 2020. It is a Friday. This is Rob Comber. He lived just a few streets over from me and Guy. We met in 2001, aged 11, on our first day at school. 20 years on, he still lives down the road. Just can't shake the guy. Rob is your co-host on the Naughties podcast. Um, And what would normally be happening were there not a global pandemic on? It would be the day before the August bank holiday. Does that does that mean anything to you, August bank holiday? Yeah, it's like GCSE results day. Yeah. Um, Notting Hill Carnival. That there is Sophie Donovan. We met in 2005. She went to an all-girls school on the other side of town and was in the year below us. She also co-hosts this podcast. Yeah, anything else? Anything that you did as a child, teenager, regularly on August bank holiday? Is it Reading Festival? It is, Rob. Yes, it's Reading Festival. And that is what this episode is all about. What's your attendance record? I've got quite a strong Reading attendance record, actually. It goes like this. Okay. 2006. Yeah. 2007. Yeah. 2008. Yeah. 2009. Yeah. Not 10? <laughs> Not 10, didn't go in 10. Uh, I beat you. One more. I went 10. Sophie, can you tell me your Reading attendance record, please? Um, oh, well, I only went once. I went 2008. Okay, um, so you only went once, but Rob, you went several times. So I guess this question's to Rob. Who do you remember seeing sort of most often? Were there people that were there regularly? Yes, there were some, there were some big name acts that were there regularly, I remember seeing. Arctic Monkeys were there. Uh, they headlined two years that I went... And there was one person who I really associate with Reading Festival as well is Frank Turner. Right. Um, because he used to perform, I think, literally every single year. And he'd often do at least two sets. But I've run the numbers myself. And I believe the act that played more than any other during the noughties was Block Party. Block Party played every year from 2004 to 2009, uh, excluding 2006. And in fact, the sort of their origin story is kind of tied up with the with the festival. So I thought, who better to reflect on Reading and Leeds in the noughties than someone from the band? So for this episode, I spoke to drummer of Block Party, Matt Tong. Reading of the the noughties was something that kind of had this had this vague aura of of mystique. I think just because Nirvana had you know their breakthrough. UK festival performance there and then I guess you know for someone who grew up when when I did it was always this thing where like oh well all these cool like alternative bands from the US kind of just took it over in the 90s for a bit Thanks a lot. you know the kind of person you meet at Reading Festival is kind of like oi blood party legend mate you know that, that, that kind of <laughs> like doesn't know my name nor should they have to know what my name is but you know they point at me and or, or whoever yeah and, or it'd be like some kind of 
oh, I love indie, oh, Storm Roses, and I'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It has like, it, at that time, it had a very blokey kind of yeah. feel that was definitely a carry-through from, from the 90s, for sure. Reading and Leeds back then was predominantly a rock festival. It played host to grunge, then Britpop, new metal, New York indie rock, and by 2004, it was bands like Arctic Monkeys and Block Party who were at the start of a new wave of guitar acts that would go on to fill festival billings for the rest of the decade. Back then, Block Party were fronted by Kelly Okoreki, with Russell Lissack on guitar and Gordon Mokes on bass. Russell and Kelly went... I think they went a bunch of times before I, you know, I even knew them, and uh, I think they kind of got to know each other through uh, mutual friends, and I think they're... Mm. Their knowledge of each other and of each other's tastes began to coalesce as they were attending the festival. Gordon, he was living and working in Reading as well, so there, there was that additional connection. I was the final part of the puzzle, so to speak. So actually, I, I'd never been to Reading or Leeds Festival prior to my involvement with the band. How did you come to be involved in the band then? I graduated from university in 2000, uh, with a philosophy degree, which wasn't really... Since I wasn't hoping to pursue a career in academia, it, w- it wasn't really much good for anything other than delivering pizzas. But, you know, in the back of my mind, I'd always hoped that m- I could be a musician at some point. And, and it was really my mum who kind of encouraged me to move to London and, and try and pursue some kind of musical career. And one of my best friends, um, he worked at the Curzon cinema with Kelly that's how I met him and it was really just through drinking at the bar I I always got like a mates rate discount so that was like my main place for getting uh, hammered and and yeah Kelly was this guy who just started working there uh, one day and and I always just I always thought to myself well he's very he's very serious and very ambitious about his band and you know I, I was like your classic kind of cynical like late gen x kind of person so I was always like I was like well, what's this guy's deal it's, it's a bit weird to be so ambitious and of course hindsight if it hadn't been for that ambition and, and that drive and that that belief that he deserved to you know have a career in music I wouldn't be sat here now I owe such a huge uh, debt of, of, of gratitude really to, to you know to him so I you know I knew about the band I, I knew that they were having a hard time kind of locking in a regular drummer and Kelly kind of sort of spent a year trying to get me to rehearse. And like, he'd never heard me play. And to be honest with you, I did play the drums a bit, but I didn't really see myself as a, you know, as that being my main instrument. And I, I hadn't really wanted to be a drummer in a band at the time of moving to London, but he wore me down in the end. And I think <laughs> I was a very angry person at the time. And I still, you know, I still have issues dealing with my anger, but like drumming was a pretty good outlet for for that so I I knew I knew how to channel that into my playing and I I just I felt like if I sat in with them a few times that maybe they'd get over the fact that I wasn't technically that good and and suddenly I was like maybe this will be a fun challenge like what would it be like to actually play a couple of gigs and for you know me to think I actually was a musician you know so that's really Mm. what led to me rehearsing with the band for the first time was there, so in those early stages, was there a moment where you realised when you were playing together, like, oh, this is actually quite good? Ooh. That's a good question. Um, what I'd like to know is, is there a better feeling as an interviewer than someone saying, that's a good question? <laughs> it's nice, I, isn't it? I think about that every time I hear someone say it on a podcast to someone. I think, 
Oh my god, what a good feeling for that person right now. They are buzzing. Do you think that was a good question? Uh, I think, I mean, I think it was a decent question. I don't think it was like, but I think what people are saying when they're saying that's a good question is they're saying, Let me I have haven't got an answer. Yeah. I haven't got an answer to say straight away. Give me some time, me some to, time to think, think about, about it. it. Well, don't take away. So you're saying it's not necessarily a good question. Well, I think the question is decent. I'm just saying that like, I mean, it's not, it's not Frost Nixon, is it? Towards the end of 2003, things really started to pick up and, you know, Steve Lamack played us for the first time on, on radio and then that's, that's really when we became a bit more aware of A&R people showing up to our gigs. We started kind of selling out venues like the Buffalo Bar. That's really when I was like, oh shit, this, this does feel good. I enjoy this. I enjoy having these people. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's fun having an audience. It's not nerve-wracking. Mm. Just take it back to... To Reading Festival, so you start. You you made your debut performance there in two thousand and four. You hadn't even released released an album at this point. Yeah, you're on the ra- radio one stage. You're second on. We were second on. Yeah, and the following year you're headlining that stage. In many ways, Reading actually did bookend that part of Block Party's career because to go from like second on to headlining that stage in the space of a year, like looking back on it now, it, I still can't believe we did that. That that. Yeah. That really was a wild ride, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not even like kidding. I think 2005 is still probably in my top three, maybe top gigs I ever did with Block Party. Like that, that was there was a moment on stage where we were playing. So here we are, and Russell just sort of turned to me and kind of just smiled, and I, I did start welling up. Like the there the were some tears coming, and I and I was thinking to myself, oh, we we've fucking done it like it doesn't matter now yeah. like it doesn't matter what happens from this point onwards we actually we you know we kind of did what we set out to do or at least for me i was like i you know if you told me two years prior that i'd be playing in front of that many people in a fucking tent at reading i would have just been like yeah whatever <laughs> you know <laughs> Nick Taylor is a producer who works for BBC Radio 3 and is the host of the My Teenage Band podcast. He was there in 2005 for that Reading Festival set. The main thing I remember is about quite early into the set, maybe we're probably talking like second or third song, someone climbed all the way up. One of the big like big poles that was like keeping the tent erect. Um, someone just climbed all the way up to the top and the band were forced to stop. And really? uh yeah, and Kelly had to make some like emotional plea, just being like, "Please, we're not. We're being told we're not allowed to play until you come back down, and this is the most important gig of our lives. So, please don't ruin it." Did he jump from the top, or was it a climb down? From what I remember, it was kind of a mid climb down until he was at a more appropriate height, and then he jumped off. So, what stage in life were you when you first went? So I'm 17 at this point. 17. Yeah. Is this your first festival experience? first yeah first full festival experience i don't think anything can quite prepare you for the final night at reading um Mm. i've got two words which is mad and max basically that was just (laughs) the only thing that was just the first thing that came to my mind it's the only thing that i can think of now we've just been to see block party and i just remember just all night a different explosion every three seconds yeah, so there's a lot of gas canisters being thrown into barrels of fire, uh, a lot of people's tents being ripped up, 
just general sort of baying mobs coming from all all sides and you weren't sure if it was going to be a crowd that were going to welcome you along or try and you know try and shit shit in your sleeping bag um or both actually um i think once i saw a tent being picked up with everyone chanting to throw the tent on the fire until a voice emerged from the tent assuring them that the tent actually had a human in it so maybe don't chuck it on the fire i mean that's pretty brutal but this is always the very first thing that comes to my mind when i think of reading festival I just remember there were some there, there was a Bane mob that had gone through the site and they'd somehow managed to steal four massive security fences from various corners of the site and they put them all together into a cage like formation and just started putting on cage fights right in the middle of the campsite Eventually, people stopped volunteering to go in. So this kind of, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight mentality kicked in. And two randomers would just be chucked in and were basically told in no uncertain terms that they were not coming out until they've had a fight. Uh, And this just just went on. Um, I didn't start going to Glastonbury, for example, until 2009. Um, But I did have friends who did start going. And they and they all said that Glastonbury was absolutely nothing like it, and they were they were shocked by the sheer level of carnage. Because I too didn't go to Glastonbury until, until much later, and I wish someone had told me that that was the the case. Because I was going to Reading each year, assuming that that is what every single other festival was like. Exactly. Because I had no yeah. other experience. I just assumed that it was normal to just sort <laughs> of expect to be covered in piss and yeah. <laughs> be setting things on fire and just having your yeah. tent destroyed. I thought that was just part of the course yeah. of a British <laughs> festival. But no, I yeah. think it was something that was fairly specific to, to Reading and Leeds. So that was my first festival experience. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? This is amazing. It's nuts. Everyone's just off their head and uh, utter carnage is like everywhere. Laura Fell is a comedian from Bristol. Because it was muddy as well. It was just like people whip off all their clothes and just slide in down like the mud canals to like the main arena. Like it just seemed that anything was fair play. But now I think when I go to festivals, I miss I miss that. Even like gigs and stuff, I think people um, behave themselves better. But I think it is because of social media and phones and being able to capture stuff has like a big thing to do with it. Because mm. people can be seen to be doing stuff. Whereas before... Like you, there was no evidence of anything that was going on unless you were there. Trolley, 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 trolley. Do you do you do you not remember that? I do now. That was it. <laughs> now you've done the chant. Yeah. Now you've done yeah, the chant. I remember it. it. That is embedded into my skull. People would get in trolleys facing each other. Their their mates would wheel them far away from each other along the walkway, fill the front of the trolley with some kind of burning something. And then, three, two, one, go, their mates would push them towards each other. And whoever, presumably, what, didn't die, like, won. And that was going on all the time. So you're trying to, like, just get around and you're literally avoiding, like, burning trolleys with, like, lads falling out of them. Becca Warner is a journalist based in London. I mean, it was great fun, but I think it was a bit of a baptism of literal fire. Um, It was basically a sort of 15-year-old boy's dream. And it just sort of felt like nothing had consequences. I definitely remember there being this constant thing of like, oh, someone's going to throw some piss on me at some point. 
Laura fell. We were watching JBT and you know you always do the test like is it warm is it cold mm. um, and a pint ricocheted off my friend's head and hit me the liquid hit me in my open mouth and it was oh my God. hot 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 it was so hot. Mm. <laughs> yeah so hot. I'm glad that doesn't like happen so often anymore oh god we had a we had I remember like that year we because it was muddy we sort of had created a uh, a pit for rubbish and we just called it the pit and obviously like two days in people were just using it as a toilet and it was oh my God. <laughs> absolutely disgusting and I was a hundred percent one of those girls that would get on people's shoulders and just flush <laughs> and I, wow. and I, but like flash flash on request because wasn't it more like if the camera panned over to you then it was like well, no. And then everyone would sort of <laughs> demand it. Yeah, more, more. I was more of the elk that, like, I wanted the camera to pan onto me. It never did. So I'd be like, guys, you've got to put me up again. <laughs> this might be my time. And they were like, no, Laura, we can't handle any more of your tits. Put them away. <laughs> <laughs> so mine was more like a request to keep them hidden. <laughs> but that is, yeah, I'd sort of forgotten that that happened. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems so weird and so dystopian now, and yet it was only 10 years ago. <laughs> It was 10 yeah. years ago, and yet there were just crowds of men <laughs> chanting for teenage, teenage girls, girls to get their, get their tits out. out. <laughs> yeah. And that was just normal. But the thing is, I miss it. Bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything comes in, it sort of in comes circles, in cycles, doesn't it? So when I'm like Maybe. 50, it'll be my time. <laughs> I'll be like, look, kids, look what Nano can do. I'd be interested to know if you end up talking to anyone who went to Leeds, because there was always a rumour that um that Leeds made Reading look like latitude. Leeds is definitely about a billion times more chaotic. <laughs> BBC Radio 3's Elizabeth Alka. Oh, I don't know. Leeds, even just being in the crowd, you can tell. It's filthy. It's filthy. No one seems to care. People go there to fully enjoy themselves. They're not going to be seen. They're literally just going to get off their faces and bounce around a lot. Um, that is the only festival I've ever camped at. And I said to myself, I will never, ever camp at a festival ever again. And I was only 18 then. <laughs> we didn't have a ground sheet in our tent. And I just remember my sleeping bag getting more and more muddy and waking up on the last day. And just my feet were just all caked in mud, just in this muddy, like, sludge at the bottom of the tent. Also, we only ate jam tarts for the whole weekend, which is unusual for festivals now, because now food is quite an important part of festivals, isn't it? I mean, they've changed oh, yeah. so much. Like, if I remember what Leeds was like then in 2000 compared to what, say, I don't know, Festival Number 6 was like a few years ago or the Green Man Festival, where you can get, like, a scallop in a shell and and pay £6 for it. Mini sausages, I remember eating a lot of at um, Reading. Mm. Yeah. And uh, cans of discount Red Bull from Lidl. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it was a real no novelty to me to go outside of a... Well, I'd been to Glastonbury a few times. And to go outside of the campsite felt crazy. But I, this is criminal, literally. But I used to just go to Tesco, pick up the lunch I wanted to eat, wander around and eat it, and then just walk out. That's <laughs> 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 so bad. <laughs> So you were treating the aisles of the supermarket yeah, it was like, like a, a museum. Free like a free cafe. <laughs> Hang on, so you just didn't pay for the food? Yeah, that's my memory. <laughs> <laughs>
because there was a supermarket just down the road. Mm. Do you remember? Yeah. And for some reason, we decided to buy. We just thought it would be really funny, along with our supplies, to buy um, a whole fish of some kind. It was what? like, a, I don't know what kind raw. of fish it was. Like, a, like, did it have like a head still on it? Like, what? Yeah, head still on, so a raw fish, yeah. uncooked. Just a fish. I mean, it looked like a, a fish. Yeah, familiar with the concept of a fish. You, you're aware of a fish. Yeah. You've seen a fish yeah, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, legs, massive legs. Four-legged yeah. fish. And, yeah. But huge. I mean, like half the size yeah. of a human. And yeah. We bought it just because, like, wouldn't it be funny to have a fish? There, there was no there was no like reason for it there was no we had no plan for it we just like buy the fish get the, get the fish on site bring the fish home and we got it there and it was like people just celebrating high-fiving each other yeah fish yeah. <laughs> we didn't do anything with it people were just like you walk around the site with a fish and people would be like yeah he's got a fish <laughs> Were there, were there any fish slaps going on? Like oh, of any... course there were. Yeah, I mean, yeah, course. loads of them. Yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not going to waste a good fish. <laughs> <laughs> the backstage catering at Leeds was much better than it was at Reading. <laughs> okay, back to block party. But then, two, so 2005, you're headlining. You're after. You're on after the future heads. Yes. Uh, who themselves are on after LCD sound system. Right. You must be bumping into the same bands quite a lot backstage. Right. I'm just wondering, are there any bands that you remember from back then that you you got on particularly well with? You know, there were definitely people we'd, we'd done the enemy tour with Future Heads uh, and Kaiser Chiefs, uh, you know, in the spring of that year. So again, you know, they were on the circuit and we'd see them around and we were, we were a bit more familiar with them just because of, of the intense month we'd all shared together. And, you know, we, we'd definitely say hi to them. But then there's also that kind of, unspoken rivalry as well and and you start to measure yourself against other bands achievements and you know suddenly the kaiser chiefs book i'm like fucking hell we went on after them at the enemy tour you know now now they're having number one hits and and again it's just stupid like people just focused on their own bullshit and like just got on with it It, this this would be much less of an issue i personally was always like self-conscious about talking to other musicians and i I still am like i've I always have this weird thing, maybe like a slight chip on my shoulder, where I think, well, I'm not really, I'm not really a proper music. I'm not like these guys, you know. Like, why should I waste their time talking to them? So, you know, it was. Well, that's. A, I just. I'm surprised to hear you say that. I don't know what. Why? What measure would you say that someone is a proper musician? Well, exactly. I mean, exactly. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? It's you know, um, that's just sometimes the negative spiral you can go into. I think, or at least I, I did. Block Party skipped Reading and Leeds in 2006, but returned to play in 2007, this time, for the first time, on the main stage. We went on before the Ch- Red Hot Chili Peppers in 2007 then. Before Arcade Fire and then the Red Hot Chili Peppers apparently. That's when I started thinking to myself that like Big Shot stuff was kind of bullshit and I, 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 I was stood backstage watching the Chili Peppers and I thought it was just such a fucking pile of wank, I, I, I really was... They were like jamming so much between the songs, and I, I couldn't understand yeah. it. I could, I could, and it was the same kind of thing. I, I, I didn't get it. It didn't feel like a rock show to me. And I'm like, great, you're really good at your instruments. That, that that's cool. <laughs> and actually, you know, they have a handful of like decent songs. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to completely hate on them. But like, I think 
what that represented was antithetical to me, and that's not why I got into music. So that's yeah. really when it, this idea that maybe there could be a different way through this started to coalesce in my mind. And um, I'm not going to say watching the Red Hot Chili Peppers ultimately led to me leaving the band, but like it, it was one of the. <laughs> It was one of those moments where I was like, uh, this isn't really for me, you know. Um, but you weren't doing the same thing. We weren't, but I was like, this is, if we want a headline, this is what we've got to do. We've got to be this kind of band. And I was like, this is, I don't want to be that. I don't really want to be that. I mean, I certainly didn't, I'd like to think I didn't try and sabotage that, uh, you know, for the others. I mean, I, I got my head down and, and did everything that was asked of me in the group. But like, it, I think... I do feel like a little bit of me died that 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 day. I don't remember playing in 2008, but I I was having a pretty rough year at that point. So, uh I'd be the first to say I was probably drinking a little bit too much. As it happens, Matt wasn't the only one that year. My memory, Don, I mean, maybe you don't want me to bring this up, but my memory is that you were very drunk. I mean, who wasn't? Who, 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 who it was wasn't? It was 2008. It was 2008. And how old are you in 2008? I was 17. Oh, no, I, yeah, I was 17 at the time, turn, uh, about to turn 18. Yeah. So, I no, I was 17. <laughs> um, I was drinking neat gin, so that's what mm. I think. But I was with you, so, you know, not that I'm putting the blame on you. Sounds like you are a bit. But you were. I, you know, been, I was older. I should have been. You were older. You were nearly nineteen. Yeah. You were my chaperone. I was an adult, technically. <laughs> but so, sorry. So, have you got any memories from me being drunk, or just that I was very drunk? You uh, the only reason. The, no, no, no. The only reason I remember it is because I obviously everyone was incredibly pissed. But I do remember it being sort of like we need to look after Donny. I'm not sure she's okay. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Oh my god. <laughs> Oh my god! She might not. She might not pull through. <laughs> there is there not. is a risk that she might not pull through. Laura fell. So it's my birthday just before Reading Festival. My friends hadn't um, made much of an effort for my birthday, so I got a bit mardy with them, and I was like, "Guys, you need to pull out the bag." And you know, um, funneling was like a big thing back then, wasn't it? Everyone like chugging mm-hmm. beer and stuff. And so they thought it'd be a t- their idea of making it up for me was putting like a bottle of vodka in whilst I was chugging a beer. <laughs> and um, <laughs> like once it's hit your throat, you can't do anything about it. That liquid's that liquid's coming down. Like, and so I had to give myself a little pep talk, and I was like, right, you can handle this. You've got this. And um, and all of a sudden, it just hit, hit me. And I roly-polyed through a fire, broke a camp chair, swallowed a sausage whole, and my friends had to like drag me back to our campsite, where I proceeded to then throw up that sausage whole. <laughs> and all we can do is just looking up from me from like the corner, like on my tent area. Um, I'm sure. So you rolled through a fire, a lit fire. Oh, <laughs> through a fire! Yeah, like my first, like literally on the Thursday. Been there like two hours, <laughs> and. Um, were you all right? Oh, yeah, fine, fine. I think it was like, you know, like you see stunt people, I think because they move so quickly, it doesn't hit them. Hang on, hang on. Did you swallow a sausage? Hole, and then threw up the sausage hole. Wait, mid-roll? <laughs> like, no, I think afterwards. I think that was the finale. I think sausage in hand, rolled through the fire, stood up, swallowed said sausage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in my head, I was like, legend. <laughs> there, was a, there was a kid in front of me well, i can't remember who we were watching mm. some generic indie band four boys guitars mm-hmm. yeah uh, and this guy i don't know 
he was his friends were telling him to just down a pint, and he duly downed the pint, and mm. everyone was like, "Wait, wait!" <laughs> uh, and then oh, he started to feel a bit queasy. He was like, oh, "I think I'm gonna be sick." And they were like, "No, no, no! Everyone get out of the way!" So like they made like a little circle away from him, and he vomited into his empty pint glass, and it literally was like he, he could blow off the top. It was a perfect pint. <laughs> hero. In live culture, he will be a hero. It was like it was the greatest thing that had ever happened. It was like he'd scored the, the winning goal in the World Cup final. People were losing their minds. They were like, yes! Yeah. Well, yes! like him again. This is it. England is yours, my friend. <laughs> you also get the guy who spends the entire weekend collecting cups to get to get their 20p back. Insane. You see it? these kids just with like, hours. Yeah, it's like a thousand cups in their hand, which is like, which will eventually be enough to like buy yourself a pint. For more on this, guitarist in the band Childcare, Rich Legate. When revisiting kind of memories of Reading Festival, I can't help but go back to what was one of the most shameful or embarrassing moments of my life. The moment, yeah, that I'm referring to happened on the Sunday. Now, at the Sunday at Reading, you're deep in Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid. You're basically functioning on thirst, hunger, all these things that if you were really pushed to your limits, you would act on as your utmost priorities. And they would do this scheme where if you if you bought a pint of carling and you brought it back to the bar, the paper cup, you'd get 20p. So on that basis... I started collecting cups on the Sunday. I think I got to about 14 cups, enough like almost to get over the threshold of being able to afford one more pint. So I spy a cup just to the left of the main stage. Some pop punk band is playing. Looks like a good one, very little superficial damage. I make my move, carrying my stack already. I go to grab it and it moves. Yeah, this cup moves, it just darts out of my reach. So I go down again, and it moves again. And then all of a sudden, a chorus of laughter. And I look round, I'm in a circle of about 20 people who have laid the trap with the cheap lager bait there perfectly for scroungers like me um, scavenging for one last pint of beer. And, you know, I've never really forgotten that. And despite seeing so much amazing music and having great times at Reading, that moment's probably just stuck with me more than anything. But then you'd get, I think then, this few single lads were like, yeah, like they'd find with the neighbouring camp, the girls, mm. <laughs> and would just sort of try and follow them. Try they, I think they thought they were flirting, but really they were just following them from a distance for most of the weekend. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's absolutely no way that any girl in their right mind was finding any of us remotely appealing (laughs) in that state a too young to have game anyway b yeah or just sweaty (laughs) and because of the time the haircuts of the time did no one any favors the sort of like big bowl cut greasy like curtain hair so i was with my first boyfriend then and I distinctly remember getting very annoyed with him because he was quite prudish, I think, when it came to like watching the music and stuff. He'd just sort of want to stand to the side. And you were like, there with your tits out. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> on someone else's shoulder. <laughs> yeah. No wonder he's pissed off. <laughs> You're boring. <laughs> yeah, so we did bring condoms with us and I was like, we can have sex on the first night and then after that it's disgusting. <laughs> Even with the condoms, I'm not going anywhere near it. Friend, I think it was funeral for a friend or some sort of band like that, some sort of you know MySpace band um, were about to come on. And a previous band, the tent had emptied, people were coming in, and there was just this utter grot bag greb couple in front of the stage, properly having sex, like properly going for it on the floor. And- and people were like coming up to the guy and just slapping his ass. He didn't stop. He didn't care. <laughs> like there was no, there was no shame whatsoever. It was utterly incredible. And yet, no one knows about that because there were no phones. Yeah, which is the beauty of it. <laughs> like that could have like that would have gone so viral. At that weekend festival, I kissed one of my sister's friends. So. <gasps> oh my god. And how old and right. how old was your sister's friend? Twelve years old. No, she was um <laughs> that's a joke. God, that's horrible. That's horrible, isn't it? No, she would have been seventeen. And I was fifteen. She was seventeen. Cougar. Yep. Were there people there to witness that story? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying it's not true. Witnesses. Witnesses. Yeah. Well, the, what? Funny. <laughs> Can anyone corroborate this? <laughs> well, you need two sources, don't you? I'm just being a good journalist. Um, Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course. Were you disgusting and gross at this point? Oh my god! <laughs> what do you look like you do now? <laughs> Fucking rank. No, I mean at a festival. Reading festival is disgusting. You're unclean. You haven't showered. <laughs> oh, no. oh my god! I was. I was. Thank God, I was. I was shaking my boots for a second. No, this is when I was hot. I don't look. <laughs> they look like I do now, which is fucking disgusting. And um, gross. And, and gross, yeah, sorry. Um. <laughs> no, but, well, you know, because it's not like... I, our 15, 16-year-old selves are not the most attractive people. No, you're right. At the best of times. But sort of two days into a festival where you haven't showered. Stinky. Uh, in, at this point, I was quite into a pair of white skinny jeans that I had purchased. I think I must have got them from London. Like, going to London was a big thing then because we all grew up in Bath where, like, the only shop that you could go to was, like, Gap or something like that. There wasn't, there wasn't a top man or anything like that. And then in this moment that I've just described, I... Um, was wearing a pair of white skinny jeans, which I'd probably worn all weekend, which were disgusting and gross. To me, that seems like, it feels like a century ago. So much has changed. Thinking more about the the culture wars and, you know, the the conversations that have opened up about equality in the, in the modern age and the language that younger people are able to use now to kind of define themselves in relation to their own identity and, and, and how that relates to the forces that push against them is so much more nuanced than it was uh, throughout mm. the noughties, I think. And that's really something that kind of comes to mind a lot now when I think about a decade that actually in many many quarters kind of defiantly flew the flag of kind of anti-PC culture very male and uh you know very monolithic in terms of its i guess kind of you know whiteness yeah i was we were i think we played the year that 50 cent was bottled off of, off of the stage and you know i 
it's that kind of thing where at the time you're like, yeah, that sucks. That's kind of that's not good behavior. That's not a, a good way to treat a performer. And, but then you know, part of me was like, well, he's a huge star. Like he can handle it. You know, he can suck this up. It kind of mm. comes with the territory. Actually, it doesn't. You know, looking back on it now. There were specific reasons he was bottled off stage, and they were not good reasons. If you know, if you know what I'm saying, I, I think there's a certain amount of like, who are you as as a rapper, and you know, representing yeah. like a, an entirely different culture to to be here in this space, and uh, that's hugely problematic. You know, the, you know the the fact that he was he he had to leave the stage after you know a handful of songs, and I, I really feel like one thing that is so like emblematic of those times is that you could buy confederate flags or confederate flags in different colors at festival stalls and yeah. like you know it was it, you kind of just accepted it at the time but like you, the, you know the level of engagement that, that your average person had with history and what that represented is, is was certainly like less nuanced than it is now for sure i mean that doesn't excuse it but like in a sense you kind of see that stuff going on and you think, well, yeah, just whatever, it's a music festival. Like, yeah, obviously now it's like, fuck, what, why, why, did we, why did we not think that was more strange? You know, particularly going out in a, in a band fronted by a black gay person, you know, amidst this like very monolithic kind of like laddish kind of culture and, and, and seeing those flags was really bizarre and, and, you know, very disorientating, I think. And, that's really the thing that comes back to me when I think about playing festivals at that time in the UK. Mm. I've been going through the the lineups of, of recent years, and actually, it's, it's it's a lot more diverse now for sure. And yeah. the, the, there's definitely a, many more acts that represent kind of a broader culture uh, than the one I came of age in. I was looking through like the lineups. I mean, I can barely pick out one female act. Oh, sure. Well, indie, indie then was like, it was so male. But do you remember um, thinking like that was weird? Do you remember thinking at the time no. like, oh, it's a bit odd that there are no, there are literally no women here. Um, I remember having a general sense at the time that the music I was into, there weren't that many women. I do remember sort of looking to who was in bands and wanting more role models and feeling like I only had very few. Here's music journalist Gemma Samwise. I just think music culture was just more overtly misogynistic back then. I think it it took me a long time growing up to get into female artists because I just didn't take them as seriously because the music press didn't take them as seriously. And I think you can really tell that with Reading. Like, it's still, they don't have many female artists on the main stage. Like, notoriously don't have headliners apart yeah. from like Paramore but yeah um, things like Daphne and Celeste Daphne and Celeste were a manufactured American teenage pop duo founded in 1999 and gained fame in the UK with songs UGLY and Ooh Stick You in 2000 they were invited to play Reading's main stage um, but you were there for that mm. I was I was right at the back I think it was uh, the Sunday and um, and it was on the middle of the rock day Elizabeth Alka. I was quite intrigued to see them. And there was there was a bit of a buzz going around, you know, oh, Daphne and Celeste. And I didn't, I mean, I knew that song, like, ooh, stick you, you mama, like, I knew it. But I didn't know why everyone was kind of excited about what about them appearing. 
Everyone had literally just gone to bottle them off. It's kind of, it felt like the whole festival site turned up to sort of laugh at it all. And then everyone just immediately started saying boo and then throwing bottles of piss at them. They departed swiftly after being constantly pelted with debris. And they had to cut it short. It was, it was, it was like impossible for them to carry on. Do you remember thinking at the time that you were sort of on board with this? Or like, did you find it, I mean, no judgment, of course. <laughs> yeah. No, do you know what? Honestly, I think I probably was on board with it. I wasn't like a, I wasn't anti it. Like, I think, I think if I'd truly been anti it, I wouldn't have gone to see it. Mm. And I'm not proud of that. But I think it, it's a, I think it was a, a synth with the culture at the time. Like, that was 20 year old plus men bottling teenagers, teenage girls. And it was mm-hmm. not, criticised. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, I think people really are critical of it, and so they should be. It's victimising young girls. But at the time, it was like a laugh and they were fair game. Like, you have to sort of look back and look, who are these adults that are booking these children (laughs) to be attacked? Yeah. I don't know. As a teenager, I was just a bit like, that was weird. (laughs) But maybe I felt like they were almost in on it, but I don't know if they were. Did you know what you were getting into, basically, before you went that day? Absolutely not. Celeste, from Daphne and Celeste. Because we weren't from the country, so much of it was, we didn't know. Like, the first time we did Top of the Pops, we didn't know that that was, like, a very big deal in the UK. Mm. Like, yeah, people tell you, like, this is an important show, but you don't really understand the, you know, social impact of something like Top of the Pops or, like, what that really means, unless you're from the UK. So we didn't like when I lied to magazines and was like, Oh yeah, we're playing Reading. I didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> I guess. Wow. I just okay. thought it's a festival. Cause we don't have, we didn't have festivals in America at the time at all. I had never heard of a music festival. Really? Like, no, they weren't a thing here yet. Daphne and Celeste met each other for the first time in New York as an audition to find a new pop act to take on the UK charts. So I met Daphne at the audition. Do you remember what you thought? Yeah, I thought she was cool. She had like these really big platform shoes on. I don't know if you remember, but that was like a thing. Yeah, I do remember. <laughs> speaking, yeah. speaking of the arts, like there were a lot of platform shoes things. And I remember that like standing out. Um, but I remember being impressed by her. And I remember that neither of us sang at the audition as much as we like danced and bopped around and we talked for like hours. <laughs> okay. So where, where, did the, where did the name Daphne actually come from? Yeah, because her name's Karen, isn't it? So we were just messing around in the studio and we were just saying all kinds of names like Saucy or like Mildred or like whatever. And we came back to the UK and our management was like, and now your name's Daphne and you're two years younger. (laughs) Karen was just like, okay. Two years younger. How do you mean? So she was, I think, 19 or 18 when we booked it. And then they just made her age like a little bit younger to be closer to me because I was 15 when I booked it. So they just they just lied. Oh yeah, that's all. That's the majority of the pop groups at that time. There was a lot of lying going on. So when this incident at Reading Festival happens, how old are you? I'm 16. You know, I'm looking back at that now, and I think, did some of the bands feel uncomfortable? <laughs> we were on stage and getting bottled, like because we were so young. I, I I don't know. It was very of the moment. I don't think that would be allowed to happen now. No. It feels to me like they knew what was going to happen. I think they knew more than we did. But I mean, our, to be fair, our management asked us multiple times, like, are you sure you want to do this? But Karen and I just thought it sounded like fun. <laughs> we were like, cool, this will be fun. Like, it'll be weird. 
now looking back, like that's weird. They <laughs> allowed any of that to happen. Yeah. So it's like time has moved very fast and, you know, social norms have changed a lot. Hmm. What memories do you have of the day? I remember being shocked by how nice everyone was. I remember Slipknot standing out, the really nice guys, Rage Against the Machine being really nice guys. Wow. So you were what? You were all mingling backstage? Well, no, because we got bottled. So a lot of the bands had huddled at the side of the stage because they couldn't believe it. Oh, wow. So they sort of came, they came to watch. Exactly. So we're leaving the stage. And I think one of the guys from Rage Against the Machine was like, you guys have bigger balls than any of us. And Karen and I had invited our family to come see. So her little brother was there and my little sister was there. And we get off stage and my little sister is bawling. <laughs> She's just crying. Oh, no. Yeah. And Slipknot made her feel better, though. They were so nice <laughs> and friendly. Well, that's really nice to hear. It was so weird. We were just happy we didn't get like hit or knocked out. We were really impressed with like everyone's creativity, the things people threw. It was just so creative, <laughs> so crazy. You're dodging shoes, bags of meat. <laughs> the bottles of piss were most popular, of course. A wheelchair. A wheelchair. But it didn't make it all the way, you know, like, because there's a big gap between the stage and the crowd. It didn't make it all the way, but the attempt was there by several individuals. Now, whose wheelchair this was, and if their mobility was compromised, I'm not sure, but... <laughs> So what was kind of the, the fallout from all this? Because am I right in saying this was kind of the, uh, it was at this, this point that kind of things came to a bit of a close? Yes. For, for Daphne and Celeste? Yeah. I think so. And it seemed like a good note to end on. So what did come next? So then Karen and I moved. Karen already lived in New York, but I moved in with her in New York and we did like acting for a while. She moved out to LA and started screenwriting. I stayed in New York and did like an underground like party scene where we were throwing like renegade parties around Brooklyn and stuff like that. I mean, in this time when you've come back from the UK and, and, and you're doing all this in America, you people don't aren't aware of, I'm imagining they're not aware of this career that you had in the UK. No, not necessarily. Did you ever, did you ever sort of tell anyone or show anyone footage? Not, not right away. I mean, if it comes up, yeah, but. So, you, so these days you don't normally bring it up? These days, you know, it comes up more often. Queer community really likes us, which is super fun. So now mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends that'll be like, you were in a pop group or something like that, which is <laughs> like, yeah, I did that thing. Um, if someone's in music, I'll usually, of course, bring it up. But it's yeah. kind of hard to be like, so I was in a British pop group and you don't even know me. <laughs> it's just a weird thing to bring up. So bring us up to speed. So what, what are you both? Are you still in touch with, with Karen? Yeah, Karen and I are still very close. We actually both just had babies. Congratulations. Seven days apart. <laughs> Seven days apart. Yeah, we got pregnant at the same time and we didn't know. <laughs> maybe they could maybe they could start an act. <laughs> That's what we said. Or we're gonna do like a, a nursery rhyme album or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Two thousand and nine was your la the last time you played Reading. That's the last time. That's the last time I played Reading, and going for like, I'd assume that um, the current lineup would have played it at some point, but they haven't. So you know, no, that was the fifth time you played in that decade. Yeah, two thousand and nine. You're on just before Radiohead. Did you did you meet any of Radiohead at that point? No. No, I, I, I remember getting very annoyed at security because my mum was trying to get to the bathroom and uh, 
they would, they, there was a brief period where they just blocked off the entire like area leading to the toilets. Uh, for Radiohead. For Radiohead. And I was like, this is Absolute fucking... divas. Who do you think they are? <laughs> Kelly and Russell, huge Radiohead fans. Like, massive. And a few years earlier, like, being on just before them would have been a big deal. But I think once you've become cogs in the machine and the, the smoke in the mirrors kind of recede from you, you start to see, well, yeah, they've had a great career. They've released some incredible music. But they're a band just like everybody else, you know. So that was the, so that was the last time that you that you played there Kelly just before the last song he actually says to the crowd that we, we won't be coming back next year probably not for a few years after that so were you aware at this point that that was possibly it uh, by that point I was actually looking for a way out and I, I I was kind of really pushing for a year off I think Kelly was also starting to wonder maybe what life outside the band would look like he's always been very uh driven and, and ambitious as an artist and I think it also kind of felt safe for him just to say oh, I'm going to do a solo record so yeah I think he'd begun moving towards that anyway um, but it wasn't a surprise to hear him say that no 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 I think it was a we more or less agreed by that point that we weren't going to do anything in 2010 and to be honest with you I wasn't going to I wasn't going to come back. I mean, I was going to take a year to kind of reflect on it, but like I, I, I kind of assumed that the band wasn't going to get back together, and I was really surprised to hear that Russell had been writing some new material, and you know Kelly was interested in meeting at the end of 2010 to see what you know we could do next. And I was shitting my pants because I was like, "Fucking hell, I've got to, I've got to meet the others now, and I've got to tell them I'm, I'm quitting. Like this is not going to be." not a good scene and we all met at Russell's house and uh, I was like oh fuck and then he had the, he has his dog and it, the dog's just running around and it's kind of just really broken up the heaviness of the mood a little bit and for whatever reason I don't know what happened but like we just started talking about how well Foles were doing at that point and like a switch <laughs> a switch just went off in my head and I was like fuck it let's just do another record like okay I Give it one more go and see what happens. Yeah. You know, and they, they'd even agreed. Like, I was like, okay, I'll record the record. And they were like, yeah, okay, if you don't want to tour, we'll figure it out. But let's just do the record. But, you know, by the time we finished recording, I was like, I've got, I've got to play these songs as well, you know. It's interesting. Why would Foles be the catalyst for that? You were just about to leave the band and then you were talking about Foles and you thought, well, Foles are doing all right. So we should probably do another album. Well, I, we'd played some shows of them and like, I was like, what? Who's this fucking band? They kind of sound a bit like us, but now like more people are coming to the shows and like, me and Gordon knew of like Yanis's previous band, the Evan Fitzgerald, which was like this super like kind of math rock, you know, post hardcore sounding group. And I was like, well, that that's so different from what they're doing now. Like, and it, it it's popular. This is, this is real weird. And... There was one block of shows that we did uh, in Europe with them, and they were supporting. And we went and we went go karting afterwards. And Yanis was terrible at it. Like literally, every time I went round a corner, he was facing in the wrong direction, and I was like taking the piss out of him afterwards. And he got he really got the hump. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, fuck this guy. <laughs> but yeah, it was right. It was uh, me personally. I make. I've gotten better at managing it, but I, I do tend to make rash decisions for the, the stupid, you know, the, the most kind of insignificant reasons. And it really was 
that moment when the balls came up, I was like, fuck it, let's do, let's just do another record. <laughs> so stupid. But you know, fair enough, balls got, got, they kept their heads down and they stuck to the task. And regardless of what I, I felt about them at the time or what I think about them now, like, they did it. They headline Reading and we, we never got to do that. You were thinking of leaving at that point, so what was the, I mean, was there something that changed that meant, okay, this is actually it? Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. I, you know, for me... <laughs> so he's using it in the same way again. Oh my God. Says it again. Do you think that was a better question than the first question? They're very similar in kind of quality, I think. I mean, they're both, they're both, yeah, they're both decent questions. That's like someone going for their first interview and they've been told that if you need to delay, just say, that's a good question. And so they say it every single time that they're asked, what's your greatest failure or whatever? Do you know tell what I mean? Time when, tell us a time when you've worked well in a team. Mm, that's good, a good question. question. <laughs> <laughs> really good question. Is it a good question? <laughs> it's one of the main interview questions. So much had already come to pass between the four of us that I feel like there, were, there was a certain amount of psychological baggage that made it hard for us to focus collectively on a, on a task and attend to it with a single-mindedness that would have led to more music that, that made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You know, something that I think is very encouraging now is also seeing the question of mental health being talked about in, you know, within the, the context of the music industry. If I was, and this is not a criticism of the people we work with at all, but there just wasn't that culture at the time. But if, mm. say, if I was managing a band who were on the precipice of something kind of major, I'd certainly want to have that conversation with them about, you know, what that would entail or how it would feel to be away from home, you know, the entire year, surrounded by people you didn't really know, you know, being asked to do things that you weren't necessarily that comfortable with. Like, you know, none of us were particularly outgoing people or like media friendly you know and then suddenly having to talk in front of cameras it's a part of the job I get it and you know it's part and parcel of like, having a career and being you know moderately successful as we were and I, I accept that but like it certainly would have been easier to handle at the time if we if mm. there was more of like a thorough or a rigid culture of actually talking about mental health it just meant that we all individually retreated and we, we you know we very quickly lost whatever sense of solidarity we have between each other so do you think it might have helped if you'd spoken about it with each other? Or did you talk about it with each other at the time, saying that this is actually quite hard? I'm struggling with this. I think if we'd had the vocabulary to discuss it, yeah, it would have been a bit easier. Mm. Um, I don't know if it ultimately would have affected how, you know, things turned out for the original iteration of the band or not. But, it, you know, it would have kind of feel like we would have gone on to do better work. So, I mean, bring us up to speed. So, so um, where are you now? What, what's, what's going on now for anyone who, who doesn't know? I've been playing in a band called Algiers for five years now. Um, Algiers is a band from Atlanta. I was really intrigued, actually, by the, the sound of the band, and it, it was really something that I feel like I hadn't encountered before. So I just really wanted to meet them and see what made them tick and, you know, kind of put myself out there again and, and you know... Did you move out to Atlanta? No, well... <laughs> Algiers is like a uh, a really good example of uh, an effective uh, and thorough internet collaboration. So, you've never met them. 
I didn't. Well, it feels like they'd never met, met each other. No, um, they all went to university together, but uh, subsequently it ended up in different parts of the world. So, really, a band of the world like sharing files with each other and kind of chipping away something that would later become their first record. So, I didn't have to move anywhere in order to become involved. Not to sound all like, oh, well, I'm doing all right or anything, but, like, the weird thing about my life since I, I left the band, like, I, I can still pretty much live off the, the royalties of the band, and, and you know, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for that, and it, it, hmm. that's a wonderful thing that I didn't anticipate. Are you still in touch with the other guys from Blood Party at all? Um, well, yeah, I still speak to Gordon fairly regularly, and, you know, we... Uh, when we're both in the same place, we, we certainly make a point of having a, a meal and a couple of beers and, you know, catching up and everything. And, yeah, I, you know, uh, he's, he's a very close friend of mine. And I, I, I think that uh, I think we have a, a lot of shared experience that we still enjoy un, un, unpacking together, you know. And uh, mm. I hear from Russell every now and then. I mean, he's carried on doing the thing that I was once associated with and sometimes there is a little bit of awkwardness surrounding that but you know like at some point I'll, I'll get to see him for sure um, he was in New York a couple of years ago and I, I, I went for a walk in the park with him and his wife and uh, that was nice you know um, Kelly I haven't really spoken to since I quit the band but um, for me at least any, any bad blood that may have uh, you know arisen during that that time it, 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 it's kind of just evaporated like you know i think we're very different people and we have a very different outlook on on life and you know i i can't ever imagine a scenario in which we'd have, you know collaborate again on something but if i saw him in the street like i'd love to have a pint with him for sure you know i, I think that would be that would be fine it, it is what it is and uh, hopefully he, he feels the same way Naughty's podcast is a Four Kicks production with music from Coach Conrad. Many thanks to Matt Tong, Celeste Cruz, Becca Warner, Nick Taylor, Elizabeth Alka, Gemma Samways, Guy Vernon, Rich Legate, and Laura Fell. If you have any great Reading and Leeds war stories, do get in touch. Drop us an email on info at fourkicksproductions.com. That's the number four, not the word. And yes, we probably should have considered that before we named the company. But what's done is done. Next week, we head to the Australian jungle and hear from its first de facto king. We'll see you then.